trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm really hoping my voice will hold out. I don't know if it's just spring allergies or what, but man, I feel like I have been gargling gasoline and uh, drinking down glasses of thumbtacks and broken glass. I don't know what's going on with that, but nonetheless, I'm very grateful that you would join me today. Got a great show ahead of us. Got some great sponsors who make this possible. And by the way, I do want to mention that uh, Monticello College is among those sponsors. MonticelloCollege.org, that is. LifesavingFood.com. Borelli.com. TMCP Nation. That's the Modern Conservative Podcast Nation. My friend John Harvey. TMCPNation.com. And ClimbingUpward.com. That would be my friend, uh, Dr. John Pulver. And I I need to mention this just because he's got a special running on his uh, Climbing Upward music. This is going uh, through... Next Monday, so the day after Mother's Day. But if you order and you use coupon code HYDE, that's H-Y-D-E, you get 35% off any and all purchases. That's a pretty sweet deal. So something you may want to jump on. So you ready for some good news? Are you ready for, for something that uh, may actually seem like, uh, like a positive in this ever-darkening world of ours? All right. I'm not saying this is the answer to everybody's prayers, but uh, when Tucker Carlson was uh, shown the door, I know that uh, for a lot of people it was like, oh, man, another blow against free speech. And I'm not going to suggest Tucker is, you know, the be all end all of the voice of truth. He is the one true source. But the guy did speak truth and especially spoke truths that were inconvenient to the establishment. So his voice being taken off of the Fox News platform, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a significant step back, especially when you consider some of the people like AOC and Charles Schumer, among others, calling for, they've got to deplatform him. This guy's dangerous. You've got, to, you've got to shut him up somehow. Well, they took their victory lap, but uh, something tells me they may not have the last laugh. This is, I'm going to play for you this three-minute video from Tucker making an announcement yesterday on Twitter. There were more than 20 million, I'm sorry, there was more than a million views of this video within the first 20 minutes. As of this moment, he's sitting at about uh, 77 million views. That's just insane. But uh, listen to the good news that he has to share. I think you may appreciate this. Hey, it's Tucker Carlson. You often hear people say the news is full of lies, but most of the time that's not exactly right. Much of what you see on television or read the New York Times is, in fact, true in the literal sense. It could pass one of the media's own fact checks. Lawyers would be willing to sign off on it. In fact, they may have. But that doesn't make it true. It's not true. At the most basic level, the news you consume is a lie, a lie of the stealthiest and most insidious kind. Facts have been withheld on purpose, along with proportion and perspective. You are being manipulated. How does that work? Let's see. If I tell you that a man has been unjustly arrested for armed robbery, that is not, strictly speaking, a lie. He may have been framed. At this point, there's been no trial, so no one can really say. But if I don't mention the fact that the same man has been arrested for the same crime six times before, am I really informing you? No, I'm not. I'm misleading you. 
And that's what the news media are doing in every story that matters every day of the week, every week of the year. What's it like to work in a system like that? After more than 30 years in the middle of it, we could tell you stories. The best you can hope for in the news business at this point is the freedom to tell the fullest truth that you can. But there are always limits. And you know that if you bump up against those limits often enough, you will be fired for it. That's not a guess. It's guaranteed. Every person who works in English language media understands that. The rule of what you can't say defines everything. It's filthy, really, and it's utterly corrupting. You can't have a free society if people aren't allowed to say what they think is true. Speech is the fundamental prerequisite for democracy. That's why it's enshrined in the first of our constitutional amendments. Amazingly, as of tonight, there aren't many platforms left that allow free speech. The last big one remaining in the world, the only one, is Twitter, where we are now. Twitter has long served as the place where our national conversation incubates and develops. Twitter is not a partisan site. Everybody's allowed here, and we think that's a good thing. And yet, for the most part, the news that you see analyzed on Twitter comes from media organizations that are themselves thinly disguised propaganda outlets. You see it on cable news. You talk about it on Twitter. The result may feel like a debate, but actually the gatekeepers are still in charge. We think that's a bad system. We know exactly how it works, and we're sick of it. Starting soon, we'll be bringing a new version of the show we've been doing for the last six and a half years to Twitter. We bring some other things, too, which we'll tell you about. But for now, we're just grateful to be here. Free speech is the main right that you have. Without it, you have no others. See you soon. Boy, is he right. He is so right about how, look, if you want to if you want to take a people's liberty, the first thing you do is you shut down their ability to to communicate freely, to speak their minds. And, and we see that going on now, uh, you know, like a lot of people. I was like, oh, good. Well, it looks like Tucker's going to be back. I don't watch his show on a regular basis, or at least I haven't, but I have greatly appreciated the clips that pop up from time to time and have shared them with you here on this program as well. Can you imagine, though, the panic? I mean, he described very well, I think, the 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 panic among uh, members of the press who, uh, well, you know, are, their job is, is not to to get us uh, it, to keep us better informed but rather to just uh, you know keep us within the boundaries of what acceptable opinion is can you imagine the panic on the part of members of the mainstream media why right, let's take a quick look and see how they're reacting Okay. Well, listen, Twitter was already under fire from misinformation, disinformation, all-out lies, anti-Semitism, racism before Elon Musk took over. And now it's gotten kind of crazy, right? Seemingly unmoored, uh, if you will. Will anybody be able to police what Carlson says? Mm. Or is this the point? It's just a free-for-all. I think this is the point. It is a free-for-all. It's what Elon Musk wants to provide. This move by Tucker may cement the idea of Twitter as a right-wing website. Wow, I didn't realize that uh, the potato, sorry, Brian Stelter, was, uh, was actually uh, doing some contract work here. I guess he's he's a, he's kind of an, a spokesperson at large for Vanity Fair magazine. But did you catch that line from the uh, from the NBC host? Will anybody be able to police what Carlson says, or is this the point? Is this just a free-for-all? Yeah, the idea of free speech terrifies members of the mainstream media, mainly because their job is not to uh, not to dispense truth, not to speak to uh, the public and, and to, to 
call into question, you know, members of, of the political class. Their job is to make sure that we are staying on narrative and that nobody questions, nobody's allowed to question. Otherwise, you get accused of disinformation, misinformation, anti-Semitism, racism. I've never seen such desperation. And, and I say this as someone who has been paying very close attention to and mildly annoyed by the media for at least the last 30 years. I mean, really paying attention for the last 30 years. I've never seen this kind of panic before in my life. So on the one hand, it's a little bit gratifying. On the other hand, it's like, wow, how desperate are they going to be? And, and by they, I don't just mean the, the mainstream media itself. I mean, what about the people in power? They really want to lock down that flow of information. It's, it's remarkable, and yet it's also kind of understandable because it's, you know, the truth is very damaging to what they're doing. And as people start to realize it, I, I'm sorry, this is going to sound like I'm tooting my own horn, but really I was just one voice of many out there who questioned things all through the COVID narrative. I questioned about uh, the masks. Is this really something that's protecting people or is this just a, an outward signal of compliance? And, you know, people were just or deplatformed. For, for saying masks don't work. Oh, you can't say that off with you. You know, you can't even you can't even be trusted to speak in the public square if you have that kind of of an attitude. And yet now it's becoming pretty common knowledge. Actually, the masks only worked, according to Dr. Fauci, maybe 10 percent on the margins. And there are other complications like respiratory illnesses and infections that come from breathing the same, you know, bacteria laden air that you that you're you know contributing to in that 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 face diaper same with the jabs same with you know the the survivability of covid all of this stuff that was being uh, being talked down as you know dangerous disinformation and misinformation people are gonna die now we realize well those people were telling the truth and i know it's, it's very tempting and i and there's times where i want to say i freaking told you so because it's really frustrating how how ugly some people got put them in camps let them die if they want to go to the emergency room or whatever but instead i will resist the urge and just encourage you find the truth speak the truth and anywhere someone is trying to limit your ability to do either of those things ignore them push back become a source of light because that's what scares them most of all this is the brian hyde show this is the brian hyde show hey welcome back to the show Something I wanted to bring you up to speed on, and uh, and I'm going to ask you to watch for this in the next uh, day or so. Um, Ammon Bundy reached out to me a couple of nights ago, and I know that uh, you've you've heard me give some updates on on his ongoing case with uh, uh, it's a civil case filed against him by the largest private employer in the state of Idaho, that being St. Luke's Healthcare. And uh, man, I'm telling you, the the civil suit that was filed against him for uh, for stepping up, organizing protests, and ultimately getting baby Cyrus returned to his family after this child was wrongfully taken under the threat of, you know, of uh, Child Protective Services. They, they did a medical kidnapping. This child is in danger. And the police, uh, by hook or crook, 
wrested this baby out of his mother's arms. They put him in the hospital. And after a week, they returned him. By the way, no charges. All the concerns, all the, all the things that were being held up against his family, uh, dismissed. But Ammon and his friend uh, Diego Rodriguez were, were um, absolutely, they, they were, were being called to account for calling out all the players in this. And it included police, it included a judge, maybe a couple of judges at this point. It included doctors, it included St. Luke's. Well, St. Luke's unleashed their, uh, their legal firm, which is the, the biggest legal firm in the state, and essentially gave them a blank check and said, you know, bury this guy, which they have. They have given him tens of, th- they've sent tens of thousands of legal documents to Ammon's home, more than he could possibly respond to. And in, in a civil case, Ammon looked at this and said, you know what? There is no way that I can fight this, you know, as far as answer each one of these things that's being filed, every filing, every brief that they send him. He says, I can't, I can't do that. This is lawfare. This is... This is someone with almost unlimited money coming against you and and saying, well, you know, we're just going to grind you down with the legal process. And so he wisely refrained from showing up to those civil proceedings, which it's not a a crime to not show up. If you don't show up, what happens is under the, the code, which guides how Idaho courts are supposed to operate, the judge is supposed to enter a default judgment. Then, you know, the, the complainant places a lien against your property and it goes from there. But instead, this judge, and, and this is what I'm going to be doing, I'm going to be creating a little series of videos. This is like what I did uh, during the Bundy's uh, trial down in Vegas a few years back. I'll be sharing a series of videos uh, talking about uh, the some of the legal paperwork that Ammon has has uh, filed, and there's a petition to transfer this case from state court to federal court because this uh, this state court judge has uh, apparently just kept the 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 complaint open long after she should have entered a default judgment. She instead allowed the complainants to to uh, to enter uh, or to uh, amend their their complaint it started with i think they were seeking fifty thousand dollars in damages well you know he said things that displeased us and whether fifty thousand dollars is what it's going to take to make us whole they have now managed to amend that to seven and a half million dollars plus they're demanding and he will need to pay another five hundred thousand dollars in legal costs on top of that i mean it's just it's so much overkill. And the judge tried to slap a gag order both on Ammon and on Diego saying, and you can't talk about this at all. So we're going to grind you with, with as much legal documentation as possible. We're going to try to take everything that you own in the world. And here's a gag that you have to wear. And you cannot talk about this. You cannot defend yourself in the court of public opinion or otherwise. Now, of course, uh, the the, the uh, folks who are complaining, St. Luke's and and their legal team, well, they're free to go to the press, which, by the way, is very happy to oblige them. Oh, really? He bullied you? He made you feel bad? So I'm encouraging you, watch for these updates. I should have, a, I hope to have a video out uh, sometime today, and I'll be releasing more of them as, as we go on. But we've got the uh, petition to transfer, we also have a memorandum of uh, in support of that petition that explains the reasons why he's doing this. Now, 
Interestingly enough, I'm starting to see Ammon is being able to do an end run around some of this uh, this media blockade that's been put in place. He's doing a bypass and and getting the word out there about what really happened in the case of baby Cyrus. Why was it that uh, that this doctor hit the panic button and got the police involved and got child protective services involved that they would want to take him from his family? He was a healthy kid. By the way, the hospital records show this over and over. The doctors said, no, this kid's healthy. They were ready to put him in a foster home the same night that they took him from his mother. And I know protests, you know, some people are like, well, but did he have to go and protest and stand there and make a nuisance of himself? Look, the greater harm was this child being taken from a loving family unjustly. It's kidnapping. And just because it's being done by people acting under the color of law does not change the nature of what happened. It's wrong. And the people who were involved in it need to be called out by name. They need to be held accountable for it. So that they don't do it again. So that they cannot victimize other people. Well, when you've got uh, you know, virtually unlimited uh, money and you've got a big powerful law firm you know, to protect your public image... You can imagine how scorched earth the mentality has become on the part of St. Luke's and its executives. It's pretty crazy. You know, they are a massive employer. And I know an awful lot of good people who work within St. Luke's. But if the, if the corporate leadership is engaged in something that is wrong or they're trying to enable or cover up something that was wrong, I mean, I just, whatever happened to the, to the notion of, okay, we made a mistake. Whatever happened to the possibility of just saying, we're sorry. Well, there's liability and they couldn't possibly, I don't care. Look, everybody makes mistakes. Even the people who wear a uniform and a badge, even the people who wear a doctor's uh, smock and a stethoscope, even the people who wear nice suits and then run giant healthcare empires, they can all make mistakes. And when they do, it's in their interest to step up to own their mistake and apologize. And then don't do it again, but instead they've doubled down on the, well, we're righteous, we're good. And they're trying to destroy Ammon and Diego in the process. And the press, ooh. I know it's not healthy to, to feel contempt toward people, but I see certain members of the press and, and they they are just, doing everything in their power to to smear Ammon, to try to associate his name with violence. Oh, he's a very violent individual. He says he's not violent. They can't point to any act of violence that he has, has gone out and initiated against anybody. Now, he's been on the receiving end of an awful lot of violence, including sitting in prison for two years, waiting for, for his trial, about half that time in solitary confinement. I'm not saying you have to agree with Ammon or you're a bad person. I'm just saying if all you know about him has come to you through mainstream media sources, you don't know crap. You know a very one-dimensional caricature that has been spoon-fed to you by a bunch of uh, propaganda experts. And all I'm asking you to consider is what if? What if this guy who is willing to, uh, to suffer for his beliefs, what if he actually was standing up for something that is good and worthwhile and was being unjustly portrayed? 
Now, again, I'm just, I'm one small voice, but I'm going to be doing my part to try to help get his side of the story out there so that people at least have, have something on which they can make a, their own decision. You, again, you don't have to agree. And I understand, well, Brian, you've been friends with him. You're probably blinded. Maybe that's the case. It's true. I, I have been friends with him, but I, I look at, uh, that means I have the option of going to the source as opposed to just simply taking somebody else's word for it. And I can tell you, having, uh, having spent a few years working alongside people who are very dedicated to preserving liberty, the more effective you are at standing up for liberty and for what is good and true, the more you are going to suffer, the more opposition you're going to encounter. That's just how it is. Based on that, maybe this guy knows something that uh, his critics don't. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I know I've kind of gone off on a little bit of a rant here, but uh, I'm, I'm very passionate about standing up for, for the truth, speaking truth to people in power. And I, I'm, not, uh, I'm certainly not holding myself up as, as an example of, and this is how it's done. Again, I'm, I'm, just, I'm one voice of many out there trying to do this. But have you noticed, can you, can you at least perceive how desperately... The work is, is increasing to try to silence anybody who questions the narrative. By the way, Jim Quinn, writing for the Burning Platform, has another remarkable fourth-turning perspective. This is, uh, this is one of the better ones that I've read, and, and I, I'll admit I have not read many books by, uh, what's the author's name here, um, Shara, Jeff Shara. Now, he's written a bunch of different things here. Uh, his father, Michael Shara, wrote The Killer Angels. Uh, uh, Jeff followed up with Gods and Generals, The Last Full Measure. Then he uh, captured the spirit of the American Revolution in fourth turn, of American Revolution Fourth Turning with Rise to Rebellion, The Glorious Cause. Then he attacked the World War II Fourth Turning with his four-part series, The Rising Tide, The Steel Wave, No Less Than Victory, and The Final Storm. The interesting thing is uh, Jeff Shara and his father, uh, Michael Shara, seem to write about uh, a lot of fourth-turning events. And, and it, I'm saying this in the context of the American Revolution and founding period, that was a fourth-turning. Everything hung in the balance. Nobody knew how that was going to come out. The war between the states. Note I'm not calling it a civil war because it wasn't a civil war. In a civil war, you have two factions vying for control over the same political apparatus. The South was not vying for control over the North. They wanted to leave and go their own separate way. And the North invaded them to compel them to stay in the Union. Oh, I know it's an unpopular way to to frame it, but that's the truth. That was a fourth turning as well. The war between the states or if you prefer Lincoln's War of Involuntary Union, I kind of like that one, and the uh, Reconstruction period that followed. That was the second fourth turning in American history. The third fourth turning in our history came with the Great Depression and World War II. And you have to understand, in every single one of these turnings, 
There was no preordained and America came out on top because that's the way it is. It all hung in the balance. So when I see uh, when I see Jim Quinn writing about this, one of the things he points out is there are some very interesting parallels in terms of the dynamics, the human nature that drove these other fourth turnings and the decisions that were made. And, and I'll just, I'll give you a, an example here. You know, when, when you talk about uh, the, the founding generation, you know, we, we give reverence, or at least we used to, before we started tearing their statues down and renaming schools and streets, because, hey, some of these guys had slaves. But they were reverenced at one point for being, you know, very courageous and standing up against almost impossible odds. Jim Quinn puts it this way. He says, what struck me as I read the book Rise to Rebellion, capturing the time period from the Boston Massacre in 1770 to the signing of the Declaration of Independence in 1776, told through the eyes of John Adams, Ben Franklin, George Washington, and British General Thomas Gage, was the extremely long odds of farmers, merchants, shop owners, and tradesmen successfully defeating the greatest empire in history and their professional army. The chances of these undisciplined, underfunded, underarmed militiamen led by George Washington and a few professional officers of winning their independence from an imperial empire and an army and navy unmatched on earth, it was virtually nil. It's the kind of perspective valuable at this juncture of a fourth turning, though, he says, rapidly accelerating towards conflict against a seemingly invincible deep state imperial empire. The odds are heavily against those who've refused to knuckle under during the COVID scam and continue to oppose the government's efforts to disarm us and destroy the moral fabric of the nation. Now, he reminds us from their writings and correspondence at the time, and these these are utilized by Shara in his novel, you realize that Adams, Franklin, and Washington were all reluctant revolutionaries. Firebrands like Sam Adams and Patrick Henry, they had no doubts about going to war. Adams and Franklin, on the other hand, did everything in their power to defuse the the brewing conflict over many years. Adams even defended the British soldiers accused of murder during the Boston Massacre and got them acquitted by an American jury. Franklin spent years in London trying to, to negotiate on behalf of the colonies while being constantly ridiculed, scorned, and humiliated by arrogant parliamentarians and an egomaniacal king. And when chosen to lead the Continental Army, Washington was hesitant to accept the position. He didn't believe the martial skills he gained during the French and Indian War were sufficient to lead a ragtag army of militia misfits against the greatest military on earth. So these men didn't conclude the military revolution was necessary to end the British tyranny lightly. After much soul-searching and angst, they realized there was no choice. They'd been pushed far enough and it was time to push back. They also knew if they failed that they would hang. Now keep in mind, in 1770, Ben Franklin was 64 years old, suffering from gout and bladder stones with life expectancies of less than 40 years in those days. This guy had far outlived most while accomplishing more as a scientist, writer, publisher, and statesman than almost anyone in history. He had every right to just live out his remaining years in peace and tranquility, but instead, he risked it all on helping birth a new nation, using all his wisdom, guile, and political acumen to help guide the younger revolutionaries like Adams, Jefferson, and Washington, among others. He was 70 in 1776 when he signed the Declaration of Independence. 
and he died in 1790, shortly after the U.S. Constitution was ratified in 1789. He spent his twilight years working tirelessly to birth this republic. And the point here that I think needs to be considered, this is what Jim Quinn is saying. He says, as I and many others enter our 60s, it feels like it's too late for us to make a difference in helping change the course of our troubled nation. But he says Ben Franklin should be an inspiration to all real patriots fighting impossible odds to try and defeat an arrogant, brutal regime bent on crushing those who believe in freedom, liberty, personal responsibility, and a constitution written in the blood of patriots 250 years ago. When narrow-minded, linear thinkers scoff at the notion of common people rising up and taking down a corrupt, evil, traitorous government, which no longer works in the best interest of the people, but for their own enrichment, he says, I must anchor my thinking in the cyclical nature of history and the inevitability of the existing social order being swept away in a river of blood during fourth turnings. That's kind of chilling, I know. <laughs> ah, wait, why did he have to say that? But he says, the acolytes of the regime in political offices, government bureaucracy, bloodsuckers, the media propaganda outlets, the woke military and the corporate boardrooms scoff at the thought of losing their wealth and power. They control the narrative. They control the technology. They control the government. They control the media. They have superior firepower in the hands of their police and military mercenaries. Their hubris knows no bounds. Their comprehension of history and human nature is non-existent as their sociopath desires overwhelm their ability to think critically and to see what lies ahead. But he says no matter how far advanced the world has become technologically in the last 250 years, one thing never changes. This is the good news. Human nature. Technological progress has certainly made it easier to kill each other today than during the American Revolution. Smartphones, TV, the Internet, uh, they've made it far easier to amuse and distract ourselves and effortless for Bernays, invisible government, to control and manipulate the masses through propaganda and psychological exploitation, as proven by the last three years of this fake COVID crisis. As Aldous Huxley pointed out, technology, technology is just making us go backwards more efficiently. So technology hasn't made us smarter. Technology hasn't made us kinder. It hasn't made us less violent. It hasn't made us less likely to kill or wage war. It hasn't made us safer. Mankind is just as prideful, greedy, wrathful, envious, lustful, gluttonous, and slothful as they were in centuries past. Human nature never changes. So we can gauge or we can analyze rather the actions of King George, Lord Dartmouth, General Gage and the other key characters of the American Revolution fourth turning to assess how Biden, Schumer and Miley will react and overreact to events unfolding during our fourth turning. And he talks about the numerous parallels between the political, societal and military dynamics of the American Revolution fourth turning and our present day fourth turning, which is accelerating toward its bloody climax yet to be labeled by future historians. I'll leave you to uh, discover the rest of this on your own. There is, a click, there is a link you can click in my show notes to uh, Jim Quinn's latest article. Very worthwhile. And if you haven't picked up a copy of The Fourth Turning by Strauss and Howe, you might just find it interesting reading. The old linear, you know, timeline of uh, dates and names makes far less sense when you start to look at the cyclical nature of history. And we are watching a cycle play out. Yeah, there are a lot of question marks that remain. But once you understand it's a cycle, it makes it a lot easier to ride it out. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You know, I I love to share information on fourth turning methodology, but at the same time, I kind of hesitate because it's like, oh boy, this sounds like more bad news. And, And we probably have more than enough bad news to deal with. And I hope you understand I'm not I'm not sharing this for the sake of those masochists out there. Oh, yes, tell me more. Tell me more about how everything is falling apart. We can pretty much see that for ourselves. But I'm sharing this with you because it's important that we understand what's happening is akin to things that have happened before. And while we may not know what the outcome is going to be at this point, we can certainly take comfort in the fact that, look, people have made wise decisions before. People have used their influence in wise and noble ways before. And if that's true, then so can we. And hopefully we will. Because ultimately that's, look, I'm just, I'm doing what I can to help populate the earth with good thinking people, whether they agree with me or not. People who understand and revere freedom and are willing to, uh, to embrace it and utilize it, to claim their rights, you know, to, to be Examples of what good, decent people can be, which Andy Frizzellis just he says this over and over, and I think he's right. The most revolutionary thing that you can do today that that will that will cause the greatest amount of resistance is to simply become an absolutely great person. Now that's character wise, physically it means we take care of ourselves. I'm kind of falling down on that one. I. Got, got a few things I've got to take care of here. It means that spiritually, we're solid, we're dependable. Financially, we're as self-sufficient as we can be. Temporally, you know, we have the means to take care of our families and ourselves and help other people. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. In fact, I, I, I shared this uh, on my uh, Hide in Plain Sight uh, um, substack earlier today. But uh, the idea is we need to become islands of purpose. And I'm hearkening back to an old commentary that uh, Paul Rosenberg shared a few years back. It may have been 10 or 12 years ago, maybe more. But he talks about how Western civilization, what made it great, what, what made Western civilization such an incredible force for good. And, and I'm, I'm going to say this without any apology. Western civilization changed the world for the better in ways that no other civilization has ever done before or since. But at the same time, Western civilization has lost its sense of purpose. In its ascendancy, Western civilization meant that every man, woman, and child knew that there were, there were values, there were, there were things that they could work toward that made the world a better place. But instead, we've just kind of, we kind of felt like, well, we've reached the peak and it's all about self-congratulations. It's purposeless. And so Paul Rosenberg says, when you find yourself in that situation, what can you do? I put it this way. Hypothetically, if you had the sense our civilization was in a state of decline, you know, just hypothetically, what might your options be? Would you disconnect? Go relocate to somewhere remote? In order to escape the growing disorder? Oh, man. 
Heavens knows I, I, I would really like to do that. But that's not the answer. Would you hunker down where you are and just try to ride out the storm without drawing too much attention to yourself? See, that's tempting too. There's a lot of contention out there. I don't really want to be a part of this. Would you fight it tooth and nail, knowing that you're begging for serious pushback and abuse? That one makes me think about Ammon Bundy. Or, this is also an option, would you just throw caution to the wind and embrace the decline? What the heck? Eat, drink, be merry? As long as we're going to hell in a bucket, we might as well enjoy the ride. I think that was an old Grateful Dead song. But there's... There's another option that we ought to consider, and this is what Paul Rosenberg recommends. And he says, we need to become islands of purpose. Now, what he's talking about there is finding something, some personal sense of deep purpose that actually changes the world for the better. Now, he uses the example of, of the cryptocurrency folks and, and Bitcoin in particular. And this is not a, you know, this is not a pitch for therefore go buy Bitcoin. But he's saying they're creating something decentralized that is out of government hands, that empowers people, and that's good. I like the other example he gives, homeschooling. Homeschooling isn't just about rescuing your kids from a school system that increasingly is, is trying to brainwash them into communist thinking, as well as trying to teach them how to perform oral sex, you know, when they're in kindergarten. What's up with that? It's not just about rescuing them from a very corrupted system that carries the force of government and compulsory laws that, that require your kid to be in there. No. Homeschoolers are becoming islands of purpose because they are populating the earth with good, solid individuals. In other words, they're raising their kids to be decent people. That's what authentic purpose looks like. It's anything that moves us or our children or grandchildren toward becoming better people. This is how Paul Rosenberg puts it. He says, whenever you see people suffering to live a better way, you're seeing islands of purpose rising up in the midst of a purposeless culture dedicated to itself. I know that last part about, oh, wait a minute, what do they have to suffer in order to live a better way? But, but you will. I'll just go back to the example of the homeschoolers. It's pretty mainstream now, and I think COVID, thankfully, actually helped uh, a lot of people when they shut down the schools and it went to distance learning. That, that was the first time a lot of people were able to think outside the box and explore the possibility, well, maybe, maybe this, uh, maybe this would work. And some of them started to uh, educate their kids at home and went, you know, my kids actually seem to respond better to this th- than I thought they would. And it became the new normal. I don't know what the percentage is, but it's, it's a lot of people who stepped up to homeschooling as a result of that. But, you know, 30 years ago, homeschooling was a much more suspicious kind of thing. I remember talking with a family that had moved to Idaho from, I think, uh, I'm pretty sure they had moved from like North Carolina. And one of the reasons they moved to the gem state was because they said, we were just trying to research which states are actually friendly towards families that want to homeschool their children. Apparently at the time, North Carolina was very strict. And even if the state isn't breathing down your neck, anyone who has homeschooled their kids knows you're going to hit skepticism. I mean, you know, we had lots of, you know, concerned family members when we were homeschooling our kids. Oh, well, how are your kids going to get socialized? What are you going to do? I mean, how, how will they, they have the, the kind of social development that they need? 
They were never impressed when I told them, oh, it's easy. Well, I'm going to swear in front of them a lot and, you know, tell them lots of uh, dirty jokes and brag about sexual escapades. And then I'm going to steal their lunch money and bully them, you know, in the bathroom. And, yeah, you know, they'll, they'll be plenty socialized by the time we're done. Don't you worry. Somehow that's, <laughs> that's not the kind of socialization they were thinking of. But my point is, at one time, you really suffered if you wanted to homeschool your kids. You had to be dedicated And I think it's still true today, not so much from the ostracizing standpoint. There are some who will do that, but it's more from the standpoint of if you aren't willing to suffer to live a better way, in this case, um, maybe one of the parents doesn't work and actually stays at home with the kids. Trying to make it on one income is not easy, but I see people doing it and they're willing to suffer because they know that it's important for the future of their children and their children's children. So that's the kind of vision that I'm encouraging you to to consider. Western civilization once had a very clear sense of purpose. It changed the world in ways that no other civilization ever did before. And if we want to maintain the best things about Western civilization, we've got to be willing to find that deep, meaningful purpose in our own lives. When we do that, it opens up the door to renewal, and growth, and it actually blesses people around us. So I'm, I'm putting a not-so-subtle challenge there in front of you and asking you, what are you doing to find your deep and meaningful purpose in life? And if you're just being carried along by the current, I look, I can relate. Spent a good portion of my life doing that, thinking, ah, this is great, you know, it's fine. So far, it seems to be taking me just, you know, comfortable places and You know, I'm enjoying my work. I'm enjoying, you know, a reasonable amount of uh, career satisfaction, a little financial success here and there. Wow, it's great. But it's nothing in comparison to tapping into a purpose that's yours and yours alone. And I know not everybody's religious, but I'm going to throw this out there. For those of you who are, the surest way to figure out what that purpose is and to tap into it and actually start to develop it to its potential is to make the conscious choice to partner with your creator. I'm saying go to God, humble yourself, get on your knees and ask God, what would you have me do? And listen. It may take more than one time asking, by the way. It may take some soul searching and some real effort before you show God, look, I'm serious about this. I really want to know. And if the answer you get makes you go, what, what, really? Chances are pretty good that's the right answer. You've been warned. This is The Brian Hyde Show.